morning, I thought, what on earth? I need to turn the furnace on. <laughs> so the times, they are a-changing, as the song goes, right? Well, it is a pleasure to be with you today, and uh, I'd like to continue exploring the meaning of the cross of Christ with you today, a second part in a series that we started last week. And the title of the sermon today is indeed Crucified with Christ, subtitled The Normal Christian Life. I hope that's not discouraging to you. But there is something to know about the cross that it was not just something for Jesus, but as he himself explained to us, the crucified life is for us as well. We don't often think about that, and I don't know if that's really preached exactly these days. It it might sound negative if you don't understand your word. But um, our key text, and I recommend it to you as a memory verse, but I'll show it to you now and then we'll, we'll finish with it at the end of the message once we give it color and context, is Galatians 2.20. It's so awesome. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Quite an amazing statement, just packed with theological truth. In fact, I'm sure you could do three sermons on this one verse. I know some pastors that could take a year with it. I once knew a pastor that preached three months on John 3.16, just tore it all apart until the people just cried out, we got it. (laughs) It's like going through Romans for three years, you know, those kind of deals. Well, anyway. This is good. And here's what Paul wrote so long ago, but it just, it just shouts out to us today. He said, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. There's a little irony in there in talking about being crucified and then the life that you are living. Which is it, death or life? Yes. And far too many people just have an oversimplified view of what the Christian life is all about because of the gifts that we have from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Some folks have a hard time focusing on any sense of suffering or sacrifice, let alone misery and pain. But the cross is not fun and games. And so the idea that the cross would have something to do with your everyday normal Christian life, just some people would find confusing, some even would find it offensive. Certainly it's not palatable, something that would be popular to preach. And yet, Paul unashamedly identifies himself and his lifestyle with the cross of Christ. And to say it so boldly is really amazing, isn't it? For I have been crucified with Christ. So we'll finish with that. But as I introduce my thoughts this morning, um, taking you on a journey to look at what's behind all that. I remember as a boy, before I was even a teenager, maybe 10, 11 years old, I had the privilege of being a candlelighter at a wedding for my mother's good friend, Anita Parker. And we lived in Seattle at the time. And she was our babysitter and had graduated from college and finally getting married to her boyfriend, Ron. And so uh, it's quite a thing to be asked to be a candlelighter when you're a boy 10 years old and most likely just to trip over your own shoelaces on the way down the aisle. So we had a rehearsal probably on a Friday night and I remember being in this church, I think an Episcopal church, and everybody was in the um, fellowship hall eating a rehearsal dinner, I'm sure. So I had wolfed down my food and I was just wandering around in the building and went back in the sanctuary and was kind of looking at where I was going to be walking the next day holding this 
candle lighting stick. And I remember to this day looking at the front of that sanctuary at the cross that was hanging on the wall. And, you know, I had no idea what that cross was for. I didn't know a thing as a little boy about Jesus. And I remember looking at that and thought, man, what is that? I was so absolutely ignorant of the things connected to Jesus and the Bible and Christianity in general that in my foolish 10-year-old muddled thinking, I thought maybe there was some connection between Christ and cross because they're kind of similar sounding words, you know, when you're 10. And I thought it must be like like Chris Cross or something. Christ Cross. It's not a great place to start your theological pilgrimage, but those were the grand thoughts swimming in my head. And I just will say to you guys, let's never underestimate what people don't know about Jesus. Not just 10-year-olds, but 60-year-olds. Muddle-headed in their thinking about who God might be who Christ is, what the church is all about, and what it would mean to follow God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So many folks have no idea. Well, I certainly didn't. Well, concerning the cross, let's make it our life mission to make sure that people have a chance to know what is the connection between Christ and and cross, so that they can have a chance to know what it means when the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as I rightly wondered at that wedding rehearsal so long ago, the cross does mean something. There is a connection between Christ and cross, obviously. But before we can explain it to other people, we really need to know very well what it means ourselves. What do you really know and understand about the cross of Christ? And what do you understand about the cross in your everyday normal life? Last week we talked about the centrality of the cross, and it's not just a minor detail of theology. But the cross is the main thing, Paul said. It's the very high point of drama and truth in the redemption story. And as Paul said, as he wrote to the Corinthian church, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? First Corinthians 2.2. Well, to, in today's message, I want to go further in opening up your understanding about the cross. And I want you to know that indeed there was a cross for Christ, but there is also a cross for you and for me, not some of you, but for all of us. And your cross is not your mother-in-law, although she might be. And your cross is not that nagging husband. You thought I was going to say wife, didn't you? Nagging wife. No. Your cross probably is not your child or that stinking job that you go to Monday through Friday. Although it might be. But how flippantly even we Christians throw around a phrase, a cross to bear. That's my cross to bear. And my question to you, to you is this. Do you know what it is, biblically speaking, to have a cross to bear? What your cross to bear really might be? It would be good to know. So in my subtitle, where I call this the normal Christian life, I'm trying to echo really what Jesus himself said, where he did not only talk about his own cross and how certainly it was his destiny, but he talked about a cross for you and a cross for me in explicit terms, emphatic terms. How many of you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ? 
a few years ago, almost everybody was trying to watch it. Many people bought a copy of the DVD and watched it. I don't have to probably explain to you or remind most of you about the horrors of death by crucifixion. But sometimes it takes some kind of a reenactment to shake up your thinking again and just enliven your imagination about what truly was involved in the Son of God giving his life a ransom for many, a ransom for you and for me to die on a cross. The Romans officially used crucifixion in meeting out justice to criminals. They were skilled at it, and they very well knew the effect of crucifixion, not just on the criminal executed, but on the general public who was exposed to that awful sight of a man, maybe a woman, hung on some kind of a tree or wooden framework with their arms outstretched, gasping for breath and clinging to life, not for minutes, but for hours, for many hours, sometimes into the next day, if a man had strength. It was horrific. A crucifixion was meant to be public, prolonged, and painful, on purpose. No merciful, lethal injection. But a certain sentence of death, which was meant to take a long time and to draw out every last measure of strength and desire to live that a person might have, lifted up high as a public spectacle to teach a lesson and to enforce the mighty and awful power and justice of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was so horrific, and I really won't detail it physically or medically for you today. But it was so horrible that it really made you want to turn your head away. And certainly it was with Jesus. Crown of thorns beaten into his skull, lashings on his back, making him still fresh, vulnerable, and pulpy in his aching flesh. Nails through his hands and feet. The righteous and beautiful one hanging there in front of everybody who wanted to see. And who could stand to behold a sight like that? Certainly not his own mother. And yet, as we like to say, it was so horrible you want to turn away, and yet it was so graphic that you were drawn again to look and to see and to ponder. As Jesus himself cryptically said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. A life being crucified captures attention. And my friends, I will say that that is true for Jesus in the ultimate sense. But ponder this. It might be true for you and me. To learn the secret, even the blessing of being crucified with Christ could so transform your otherwise seemingly ordinary existence into a blank slate in which the glory of God might be written out for all to see, written in your life, written even in your suffering, that men might be drawn not to you, but to Christ. A crucifixion demands attention. Well, no one would wish a cross on anybody. 
We wouldn't wish it on Jesus. We wouldn't wish it for our friends or for ourselves. So it is difficult to think about embracing this idea of being crucified with Christ. Who seeks for that? How does that fit in the health and wealth gospel? It could. I'll say it should. Recalibrate your thinking about what it means to live for God by folding in the idea of being crucified with Christ. Where would this come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. So three key passages I want you to look at. First of all, I think the one that lays down the template for this whole concept is Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, where Simon Peter rightly declared him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that I am, Jesus said. And this is our text for cross. Cross for Jesus and the cross for you. Take a look at it. Turn there with me if you have a Bible. Matthew 16. And... um, It it is worth looking at the section, verses 13 to 28. Matthew 16. Certainly a primary text for Christ and cross. So follow along with me as I read from Matthew 16, 13 right on through the end of the chapter. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. All very interesting. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of you who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom quite a dramatic episode where we have a confident confession of the identity of Jesus by Simon Peter who steps forward as the leader of the pack and says thou art the Christ and we give him an A plus with extra credit Peter right right answer and Jesus did not rebuke him for identifying as the Christ but confirmed it and in fact said that God the Father revealed that to him no person. It was an awesome moment for Peter. And he talks about the privilege there of leadership for Peter and the apostles in really having authoritative 
keys to the kingdom. But he moves on from that discussion about his identity. A question he put to them, by the way. So this was Jesus' initiative. By the way, people in the world, they always say, Jesus never claimed to be, you know, the son of God or the Christ or anything so special. That's what man made of him. Such folks never read the Bible. (laughs) Jesus drew this out of Peter and knew full well what he was fishing for and then confirmed what answer was given. So I don't know why people say such silly things, but that's, that's the way of the world. Well, Jesus moves on from talking about his identity to his impending suffering, and he just talked about how he must go to Jerusalem, he'd be, tra- be betrayed there and die and rise up on the third day. He doesn't use the word cross here. He does in other places. But as he talked about the cup that the father had for him to drink, Peter rebukes his master. That's not a good move ever, as my sons knew from disagreeing with mom. You just don't do that. It won't go well with you. Uh, Peter went from this great moment of confessing Christ to disagreeing with him and actually rebuking him. He said, this this." awful fate that you're describing for yourself, it must never happen. In fact, God forbid that it should happen. It must never happen to you. And the Lord rebuked him and saw Peter standing in the way of his path to the cross as a stumbling block of Satan. That's quite a rebuke. I love this. You want to rebuke me? Back at you. You are so wrong. There is such a future for me. And three things stand out here in this section about the cross. Number one, the cross was an imperative for Jesus. Don't miss where he said, I must go to Jerusalem and these things will happen. The cross didn't, happened to Jesus. The cross was chosen and pursued by Jesus. That's that's first and foremost. Secondly, the cross figures large in God's plans, never in man's. But in the inverted economy of God, crosses can be necessary and crosses can be effective and crosses can be good. Never in human imagination would that be so. But when Peter objects to the cross, he says, you're thinking like men think, not like God thinks. You don't know the first thing about it, little man, but you're going to see. Peter tried to get on board later. He said, oh, I'll go with you. I'm willing to die for you. Sure you are. We'll see how that rolls in a minute. So the cross was an imperative for Jesus. The cross figures large in God's plans. And third, Jesus goes on here to talk about how the cross is the pathway of discipleship for all who would follow him. It's all about cross, which is our focus today. He's pretty comprehensive here in his statements. In verse 24, when he switches gears to talk about not his cross, but our cross, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Not just a few of you, some special minority might have a cross, but no, if anybody wants to come after me, it's an open offer, but you need to know what the offer is. It's an offer to pick up your cross and be imitators of me in in so many ways. The cross is not an oddity, not the special domain of the Son of God. Jesus wants to know it's the path to things great in the sight of God. We need to embrace that and work it through in our own lives, people. How does the cross figure into the equation of your discipleship? That's what I would ask you this morning. And when he talks about taking up that cross... 
There's a negative and a positive sense in what he says. Negatively, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. You are saying no to yourself in certain ways to follow Jesus. It's not the best you yet. It's probably quite a bit of an emptying of you that is at the heart of being an awesome Christian. Less of me, more of him. I must decrease, he must increase. That's the spirit. Deny himself. Where is that in your formula of discipleship and following Jesus? But in the positive sense, you're not just saying no to yourself, but you are saying yes to a cross, embracing some form of inconvenience or suffering and pain, maybe even death. Where is that in your formula? That in some ways what God might have for you and for me in our lives is to say yes to some rough waters. It can be okay. It might even be the best thing ever. We're so conditioned as happy Americans cheerful, prospering Christians just to think that when God's on my side and things are right, that everything is going to go along swimmingly. Maybe not. To the glory of God. Maybe not. Great. To the glory of God. It could be okay. It could be your best life ever to have it not be okay. You get this? Well, how does this work? I think the best illustration of what Jesus is talking about right here with his disciples is just um, put out in living color for us to see in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the story well, but if you just want to look at it for a second, Matthew 26. And here we see Jesus embracing cross. Now, you know, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray after the Last Supper. It's so awesome here. I didn't know any of this when I was 10 and reasoning it through Chris Cross. So glad someone told me the old, old story of Jesus and his love, right? So here we are right on the heels of the Last Supper, Matthew 26, and I just want to start reading for you verse 30. Matthew 26, 30 and onward. So they had that Last Supper, and they had the bread and the wine. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Mm -mm -mm. Thou art the man. Peter. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, here it is, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Not just Peter, you see, it's a group bragging here. All right, here's Gethsemane now, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
And he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now what's being worked out here in Gethsemane is Jesus embracing cross. And there's three things that are happening here. Realization, exploration, and resignation. First, realization. It is pressing home on his heart that the hour indeed was at hand for him to give his life. To suffer the physical agonies of the cross, but also to suffer the spiritual horror of being the sin bearer for the entire world and having the Father turn away so that Jesus would say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as the realization of that presses home on him, that now is the time, and this is the path that I have and the destiny to seek out, he does some exploring. There is realization, but now there is exploration. And he is saying, you know, Father, if there's another way we could do all this, that would be super if this cup could pass for me, if I wouldn't have to die on that cross. Nothing evil about it, just an honest desire to not have to suffer. Like we're not morbidly suicidal as Christians. Like we don't prefer to just look for crosses every day. But when there is one to take up, we want to be the first to say, yes, Lord. So Jesus said, if there's any other way, that would be great. But finally, we have resignation. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And so here we learn the three keys of what it means to embrace a cross from God. True for Jesus and also true for you. What it is ultimately about is not just the suffering or the form of suffering per se, but what it is about is being willing to do the will of God, come what may. If this is the will of God, if this is his commandment, if this is his calling, and once I know it and see it clearly, then I want to be the man who says, yes, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Even if it costs me something, even if it costs me everything, even if it's hard or uncomfortable, that's where I want to live is to say, thy will be done. Jesus demonstrates this at Gethsemane. You cannot miss the patterns of threes, can you? In the passage that we just read three times, Simon Peter, the bold one, was predicted to in the future, be betraying Jesus. But here in Gethsemane, we see three times. Not a betrayal, not a denial, but a, yes, Father, I am willing to do your will. Well, there are the two polar opposites of human existence, people. Proposing to do great things, even bragging about doing great things and not following through on the half of it. 
versus the life that has recognized how to discern the will of God and having discerned it, having the courage to do it. What kind of a man am I and what kind of a woman are you? What rules in our daily experience and in our choices and the procedures that we follow in making decisions? This is what the cross means for Jesus. And this is what it means for us. Now, people have done weird things with this command of Jesus to take up our cross and follow him. You ever seen people who actually made a cross and carried it around town? Has anybody ever done that in Chihuahua? Famously, some people have done that in the United States. I mean, he made a big eight-foot cross. I hope it was out of balsa wood. Can't imagine glue lamb beams, you know, carrying that around, right, Larry? You make it about 100 yards. Oofta. I had a friend when I was in college in my church as a new Christian. His name was John Bogdan, and he was inspired by somebody he saw on TV or movie or something. He made a cross and walked around Renton, Washington, carrying this cross. Got all kinds of attention for himself. I think he was trying to draw attention to Jesus and his cross. But that is not what Jesus is asking us to do is fashion wooden crosses and walk around with them. Take it to work with you. Put it in your locker at school and just carry a cross. It's not what it's about. Neither is it about general human suffering as though every time we suffer, that's your cross. If that would be true, everybody would be carrying crosses. Jesus would never have to command us implore us to take up our own cross and to follow him. It's not about general human misery. If that were true, everybody would be qualified for heaven. It's way beyond that. It is specifically about embracing the will of God, the disclosed will of God, no matter what the cost. And it's certainly not about a morbid pursuit of persecution. We may be persecuted. We may be given a cross to carry by this hateful world. We're not going to go looking for it. We're not going to go downtown here in Chihuahua and just see if you can be offensive every day so that glory be to God, someone can finally persecute you and you can say, I've arrived like Paul, like Jesus. I am a martyr for the faith. You don't go shopping for it. And yet... Cross to carry is part of normal Christian life. But in the will of God, not in the foolishness of men. Indeed, Jesus wanted us to know that there will be a cross for us and it will be hard for us to carry it and to follow him. Because the cross was about two things that are inextricably woven together, you guys. You need to always remember this. Because it works out in his life and also works out in your life. But why was Jesus crucified? Two things were happening at the same time. One was, it was the predetermined will of God, the Father. That he should be born of a virgin and come into the world and grow up being made in the likeness of man, the eternal son of God, taking our sins upon himself and dying on a cross. That's why Jesus was crucified. But there's a subplot to all of this, and that's not the only reason we can say he was crucified. Why was he nailed there? Who nailed him there? This world nailed him there. The unbelieving children of Israel who rejected him as their Messiah, they saw to it that his life was put to an end. And the Romans were complicit in it and Pilate washed his hands of it all. And though he said, I find no guilt in him, he gave into the crowds who shouted out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so they did. 
Who killed Jesus? Everybody. (laughs) But it didn't knock God off his balance. It didn't knock Jesus off his balance. He embraced it. The same is true for you. There may be hard things that will come into your life. And if you have the eyes and the heart to discern it, you may recognize that some of those things are delivered to you by a UPS truck straight from God the Father with your address on it. Hard things for you to bear for the glory of God. But Jesus also promised us there will be hard things across, so to speak, because of this hateful, unbelieving world. And like him who was hated, we also following him will be hated. He made that so clear. You know, the gospel of John is all about love and happiness, but Jesus sure talked a lot about hatred by the world. And if you propose to join Jesus in living a life of the cross, he just wanted you to know. It's going to be a little bit rough. Turn to the Gospel of John, and uh, we're heading to the finish line here, people. So if you're squirmy for any reason whatsoever, whether it's the topic or lunch coming, have hope. I just want to show you a couple things in John 15, 16, and 17 where Jesus assured us that just as he suffered and had his cross at the hands of sinful men, so shall we. For example, in John 15, I'm sure some of you guys have this marked in your Bible. John 15, 18. Through the end of the chapter. John 15, 18, Jesus said, remember at the Last Supper, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. All these cheery, chummy words are right here in the Gospel of John. When's the last time we heard a good sermon on this? Also, John 16, verses 1 through 4. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Wow, that's extreme. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. These things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. One of my favorite verses, John sixteen thirty three. I remember as a young Christian, we learned a song that that was indeed the very words of John sixteen thirty three. I don't know if any of you ever learned the song. These things I have spoken unto you. That in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Who knows that song? My wife. (laughs) Man, I have to bring my guitar next time. We'll sing it. This is gospel truth, people. That there is a suffering that comes unavoidably to all Christians if we are faithful to follow him. 
John 17, 14. The high priestly prayer of Christ, I just pick out this one thing he said. John 17, 14. Jesus said to the Father, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. These things that Jesus said are laid down indeed as a template for us to know. What is part of the, of the normal, everyday Christian life? It is to embrace the cross of Christ, yes, as the great sacrifice for all sinners. God's gift to me that I might be saved and have the transfer of my guilt to him. But also that the cross is about the cross that I will carry because I belong to him, identify with him, and imitate him in every way. And as he was hated, so also we will be hated. You may think, well, if I'm polite... And I'm a skillful Christian, seasoning my speech with salt and just being amazingly diplomatic. I can win the world to Christ and never be hated. No, you can't. And lesson number two for every new Christian is to learn this. You cannot be everybody's friend and the friend of the world and think you will be the friend of God. There will be times when you have to make a choice. And to be pleasing to him, you will have to be displeasing to them. That is reality. Christianity 101.2. 101.1 is just believe on him and be saved, right? But you got to learn that fast and early and right, or you're just going to you're going to be deceived and disappointed your whole Christian life. As the Apostle Paul rightly said in 2 Timothy 3.12, you don't need to turn there, but he echoed all of these words of Jesus when he said, and he knew it by experience, by the way, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What a comprehensive statement. If you surveyed the writings of the Apostle Paul, you'll know he talked a lot about being crucified with Christ. And one aspect of that for him was that he considered himself dead and crucified to the desires of the flesh. In the negative sense, he was a dead man dead to sin, but alive to Christ. But in the positive sense, like Jesus, his embrace of a crucified lifestyle meant that he was committed to doing the will of God in his life, no matter what it costs. And he would often say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I don't consider my life as dear to myself, but what's important to me is to do what Jesus asked me to do when he called me. That's what my life is all about. So my friends, all these things are the backdrop to those great and amazing words that he wrote. For I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. You think of all the saints who knew this lesson and knew it well, who gave their lives not an atoning sense like Jesus did and only could do. But so many Christians have learned the secret of pleasing God no matter what the world throws at them and gladly shed their blood, lost limbs, lost their heads, were imprisoned, had their property confiscated, publicly mocked and humiliated, families harassed, jobs lost, all of it. For the sake of pleasing God. From the day that Jesus gave his life on the cross to the examples of the apostles who followed on his footsteps, to James who was beheaded and Peter who was imprisoned, all the way to the present day, to the people you read about in the voices of the martyrs, 
all over the world today in 2020 who suffer for the sake of the name. That is the path of discipleship. This world, this generation doesn't know what it's living for, has no idea what is true, has no idea what is valuable. How great and glorious it would be if the Christians would rise up with wisdom, strength, courage, and confidence and say like Paul said, I know whom I have believed in and I am confident that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that great day. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I know what is true, I know what is right, and I know what is wrong. Amen? That would be a great thing. And if that includes some kind of magnificent cross for you, so be it. Better that you should go down in history as a man who served God. Let it be inscribed on your gravestone that you knew the purpose of your life. Even if your life was cut short, people will not say what a tragedy, but they will say what an inspiring example. We should all be like that. I think the gospel is being short-souled out there, folks. Some version of it that is pathetic and anemic, undesirable to my soul when I hear it every time. I'll turn those preachers off. They're not worthy to be on my radio, not worthy to be on my TV, not worthy to read their blog on the Internet, and I won't send them a penny of the pennies I don't have. But this gospel is worthy of my life. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. The everyday Christian life. The normal Christian life. Let's pray. So, Father, we only say one thing. Teach us to say, thy will be done. In Jesus' name.